You've heard this story before. An old news organization, struggling to compete, shuts down its newspapers. Reporters are laid off, severance packages handed out. When a version of that story played out in 2015 with the Scripps Howard News Service, a bureau chief was tasked with delivering the bad news. This included pulling in one team of investigative reporters to tell them they no longer had jobs. One of them, a guy named Thomas Hargrove, had been there almost 40 years, hired straight out of college. But Thomas did not react how you think he might react. I think uh, the bureau chief might have been surprised that I was kind of smiling during this whole process because I was really looking forward to what was going to follow. I knew that I would spend the rest of my life working murder. An idea had been simmering in Thomas's head for a while now. Years earlier, he'd been made aware of a major problem with law enforcement. He thought he knew how to help fix it. He'd also become somewhat obsessed with serial killers. He'd had an idea for that too. If he no longer had a day job, he might just have the time for an entirely new career, a career he'd build from the ground up that could help both cops and reporters. In short, This was the best layoff ever. I'm Blake Nelson, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. We'll get back to that layoff in a bit. But to understand what came after it, you need to know what came before. When Thomas was an undergrad at the University of Missouri, he once had to conduct a survey for a political science class. It wasn't exactly love at first sight. This was the 1970s and the era of punch cards. To get a computer to read your data, you had to physically punch holes in this giant card and then feed that card into a computer. But the process grew on him. I uh, was invited to uh, participate in NBC's 1976 presidential um, exit polling. That was just fascinating. Punching and processing data just as quickly as possible and then producing printouts to local television people so that they could interpret and comment on the air about the data. These were helpful skills to learn. When a recruiter came to the university to interview potential hires, Thomas said he was the only one offered a job. It's it's astonishing how often in journalism it's necessary to be able to take government data Uh, do things for which the data were never intended but are critically important. Because if you learn how to conduct polls, you learn how to do anything. uh, Anything involving large amounts of data, uh, there's no difference. Whether you're you're a pollster or an investigative reporter, they are the same, exact same challenges. Thomas started out at the Birmingham Post-Herald in Alabama. It was a great first job. He started out covering crime, then moved to politics. And in the process... That's when I first learned about serial killing. A little to the east of Birmingham is Atlanta, Georgia. And while Thomas was at the Post-Herald, a notorious murder spree called the Atlanta Child Murders were playing out. Between 1979 and 1981, about 29 people, mostly boys, were kidnapped and killed. 
A man was eventually convicted for two of the murders and linked to another 20. For many Americans, this was when serial killer first became a household term. I attended several um, gatherings of criminologists, journalists, and homicide detectives in the wake of the, of the child killings. Uh, and um, one of the first things I learned was that it is common for police to struggle to recognize the pattern. The problem is called linkage blindness. One officer is assigned to one murder, a second officer to another murder. If they don't compare notes, they may not realize they're chasing the same suspect. And that was certainly a factor in the Atlanta child murders. It took the police a while to recognize and then to accept that they had a serial killer. That's just the way it is. It happens everywhere. It is just endemic to how we work murders in this country. Those murders and that problem stuck with Thomas, even as decades went by and he moved to Washington to join the national staff of the Scripps Howard News Service. Then in 2004, while working on a story, he purchased a crime report created by the FBI. And it just so happened that purchase came with the FBI's supplementary homicide report. Murder information from across the country going back years, free of charge. And when I opened it, I was fascinated, line after line, of murder after murder, the uh, demographic information about the victims, their age, sex, race, the method of killing, uh, the circumstances in the, involved in the case, uh, demographic information about, about the offender, if identified. Looking at the data, a thought occurred to him. Would it be possible to teach a computer to find serial killers? Supplementary homicide report wasn't necessarily intended as a tool to investigate murder. Police chiefs created it as an academic tool, Thomas said, to study the nature of murder. But Thomas thought he could use it for more than that, so he pitched the idea to his editors. Could you give me some time, he said, to build an algorithm that would spot serial killers? They were not ecstatic about him dropping everything to try and do something nobody had ever done before. But he kept bringing it up for six years until the bureau chief finally said, fine, you've got a year to figure this out. And who gets that? Who gets that in journalism these days? But I was given a year to study unsolved murder with an understanding that also we were going to try to to develop a computer program to spot serial murder. With help from a University of Missouri graduate student, Thomas started plugging away at the algorithm. Now, algorithm is one of those words you're probably comfortable using in a sentence, but may not be able to define in detail. Yeah, it sounds like a mysterious word. It's not. An algorithm is simply a series of mathematical steps that produces a solution. In other words, when your high school teacher told you to solve for X, and it took a couple of steps to get there, that's an algorithm. The difference between freshman geometry and what Thomas and his grad assistant were doing was that they were trying to create an algorithm from scratch. What questions could a computer ask that would lead to a serial killer? To test different versions, they zeroed in on the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history, Gary Ridgway, known as the Green River Killer, who spent two decades murdering dozens of women in Washington state. If their algorithm could spot that guy, Thomas thought, it might be able to spot others. 
we found 100 things that don't work. We tried things like when there is a serial killer active in a community, does that increase the rate of, of murder? It did not. We knew from the FBI that 70% of serial killing victims are female. So we um, tested whether or not there was an elevated rate of murder among women. Also negative. They checked whether the data showed an increase of one particular method of murder. They checked if a community saw a rise in unsolved murders. That didn't work either. And then we tried back to the 70% of serial killer victims are women. Would there be a sudden decline in solution rates for murders of women? And that worked a, a tiny bit. There were some communities that we knew had serial killers for which suddenly there was a decline in solution for murders of women. Uh, arrests became less common. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. So that wasn't a solution, but that suggested what ultimately became the solution. Thomas ended up telling the computer to flag murders united by four things. Location, gender, age, and the weapon used. Research has shown that serial killers tend to work in one general area, target one gender and one age group, and kill people in similar ways. So after clustering murders united by those characteristics, Thomas then told the computer to flag clusters that had a lot of unsolved cases. Then, like magic, uh, the, the Seattle murders pop right up. Ridgeway's victims popped into two groups. He um, killed a significant number of young adult women, and he killed a significant number of teenage women. Success. Except... The only problem was um, there were dozens and dozens of other clusters. In fact, uh, the most successful serial killer known was actually only in third place in the first time we ran the data. So the question is, what about all of these other highly suspicious clusters. They were all over the country. The algorithm appeared to work, but if it was correct, there were active serial killers working throughout the country who had never been caught, that had never been publicized. We picked 10 large clusters and we started calling police departments giving them the, the data and asking, were these serial kill killers already known to them? In some cases, they were. In other cases, they were not. One of Thomas's early calls was to the chief of detectives in Youngstown, Ohio. This is in 2010. And just imagine for a second that you're a cop who, out of the blue, gets this voicemail. I'm a reporter at the Scripps Howard News Service. We've developed a statistical model that uh, may, uh, may detect uh, linked cases that go to a common killer. There were a significant number of unsolved murders of uh, middle-aged black women in Youngstown, Ohio, that we thought looked highly suspicious. The detective listened to the voicemail, headed down to the squad room, and asked his detectives, do you know anything about a serial killer in the area? And they told him something he did not know, that yes, they absolutely thought they were up against a, a serial killer in the 1990s, and they never got him. And he was astonished by that, that information and decided uh, there on the spot that they were going to take another look. The detective's effort, unfortunately, was unsuccessful. But it did prove that the algorithm was working. We reached out to that detective, but he didn't return requests for comment. 
Other calls did not go as well. One cluster that lit up like a Christmas tree was around Gary, Indiana. So I contacted the, uh, the public information officer for the Gary police, and his first response was he checked with the homicide detectives, and they have absolutely no unsolved serial killings on their book. End of story. Nothing, nothing there. Nothing to see here. Move along. Thomas showed me nine pages of messages he sent to different officials in Gary, trying to get them to pay attention to the data. It went on for months, contacting um, or trying to contact the, uh, the chief of detectives, the, uh, the police chief, and the mayor. We were afraid that we were going to interrupt a, um, a major police investigation. We needn't have worried about that, um, but that was what we were afraid of. He did get the attention of the county coroner's office. They not only agreed with his conclusion, but found several other cases that they thought might be connected. But they were the only ones that seemed concerned. So we went to print and nothing more out of Gary for a few years. Then in 2014, in a town near Gary, a police officer found the body of a woman in a Motel 6 bathtub. They quickly make an arrest of a um, middle-aged man who then confessed that he had been at this for a while, that he had been active in Gary, Indiana, in going back to the 1990s. The man asked the officers, did they want to see some of his work? They went into Gary, Indiana, and um, he was able to recover six previously unknown homicide victims, all bodies left in abandoned properties, all strangulation victims. So seven women died after my attempts to warn uh, the uh, Gary Police Department that they had a serial killer. A day later, a reporter asked the new chief of the Gary Police Department if he had any inclination that there might have been a serial killer in the area. And the chief said, nope. That's when I went kind of, you know, nuts, angry. Wrote some stories uh, about how, yes, uh, we very much had warned you um, at length, trying to get you to take the possibility seriously. Um, Gary, Indiana has had five police chiefs in the last few years. I hope things turn around there someday. But as I say, it was the most frustrating experience in my professional life. Thomas did get the new chief to promise him that the department would start reporting their clearance rate, something they had not been doing. This is one of the most important numbers out there when studying police departments. A clearance rate is the number of cases that result in an arrest. If a town has 10 murders a year, for example, and police make arrests in two of those cases, you've got a clearance rate of 20%, which is not good. It turns out some police departments didn't tell anyone what their clearance rate was. Some didn't even report details about murders in their area to the Justice Department. Entire states were missing from that FBI report. The most comprehensive collection of murder data in the country, in other words, was not comprehensive. Thomas had found a serious need that he was uniquely qualified to address, which is why, when a bureau chief told Thomas and his team at Scripps that they were getting canned, Thomas was elated. I think uh, the bureau chief 
might have been surprised that I was kind of smiling uh, during this whole process because I was really looking forward to what was going to follow. I knew that I would spend the rest of my life working murder and trying to produce uh, the most complete accounting of murder possible. So I'm just very grateful for how things transpired. Thomas was able to retire at 59 with money he received through the layoff. He quickly started a nonprofit called the Murder Accountability Project and a website, murderdata.org. If you've got your computer open, do not go to that website quite yet, because as soon as you see what it's capable of, you will stop listening to this podcast. Helping him run the nonprofit is a former FBI investigator, and his board of directors includes a former police chief. Their website uses the FBI's Supplementary Homicide Report, or SHR, as its foundation. But again, entire states were not in that report. So Thomas started picking fights. We don't have to be politic at all. We think the people have a right to know how they're being murdered and whether those murders are being solved. Step one, ask for the data. Sometimes that works. Florida does not report to the SHR, uh, but they, they agree to report to us. Step two, if rebuffed, file a Freedom of Information Act request. If you refuse that, then we're going to court. That's exactly what happened with Illinois. The state hadn't reported murder details or its clearance rate for more than 20 years. Thomas sued for both and did get some missing records. We were able to gather about 400 murder cases that they still retained. Unfortunately, they told the judge that they had um, disposed of hundreds of, of unreported murder files because under their records retention law, they no longer had to keep them, and so they didn't, and they're gone forever. The good news is Illinois State Police told the judge that they have resumed or are resuming the uh, reporting to the supplementary homicide report. So while many of those old cases are lost forever, murder information from here on out should be available. Thomas was less successful when it came to Illinois' clearance rate. The state told the judge, we can't give you that number because we don't actually track that number. And when we found that out, we decided to find out how bad it is. And so we FOIA'd 102 police departments asking that they tell us how many murders they had and how many murders they uh, cleared through arrest in 2014 and 2015. And it turns out, and I guess this shouldn't be a surprise, we found out what the cost is if you keep your eyes wide shut. Um, Illinois um, has the lowest statewide clearance rate of any state in the United States. They are simply the worst. And the problem is not just in, in uh, Chicago. Many major police departments fail to clear most of their murders. The state of Alabama may be sued next. They also don't report a lot of information. But in the meantime, we have gathered records now on more than 23,000 murders that were never reported to the Justice Department. And every year, the size of, of the cases that only exist at our website grows. Um, so I can tell you with absolute confidence, we are the most complete accounting there is anywhere of murder in the United States. That bears repeating. A small team of people, led by a retired journalist, have assembled a collection of murder data that's more complete than any law enforcement agency in the country. And their website makes it ridiculously easy for anyone to sort through the numbers. It recently took me about 90 seconds to see how many murders had occurred in Columbia, Missouri, where IRE is headquartered. There weren't many, 
The site also showed that Columbia has a clearance rate of almost 90%, which makes me feel pretty good about walking home at night. Plus, don't forget this data comes with an algorithm to spot serial killers. We've tried to crowdsource murder, and so we make available online um, uh, uh, data display systems so that it becomes perfectly obvious when something awful is happening, uh, because suddenly the screen will turn red if you've stumbled into a cluster of, of probable serial killings. Thomas and his organization are sometimes called in to help on individual investigations, like in Cleveland, Ohio, which may have at least one serial killer still on the loose. The problem in Cleveland is they don't have enough cops. It's the problem everywhere, that they only have 13 full-time homicide investigators, and that is simply an insufficient force for a police department that routinely handles about 120 murders a year. That's just not enough manpower. Thomas sees this data as a resource for law enforcement, not just journalists. Nobody at the nonprofit is paid, and they spend donations they get on travel expenses to speak to homicide detectives at conferences. But the benefit for journalists is obvious. It helps that they're a nonprofit. I have to say that it is empowering to know that nobody's going to say no to us because there's nobody to say no. I mean, so if we want to do something, we do it. And um, we don't have to worry if we'll offend anybody or if the managing editor will like the idea or not like the idea. No traditional news organization wants to, to specialize on a particular kind of story. They, they generally have to be generalists because that's what attracts the, the largest audience. So niche journalism, which is tailor-made for nonprofit, uh, can be a force. And that's what we are. We're, we're a niche operation. We found a particular need and we specialize in that. And I think there, there's going to be more and more of that. He also wants to pay it forward by helping other journalists who want to start their own nonprofits. If there are young journalists out there who would like help on uh, the technical side of how to incorporate and form a, a nonprofit, I'd be happy to help. I'd be happy to send to anybody our incorporation documents. The project is only about two years old. I don't know what the Murder Accountability Project is going to look like 10 years from now. I do believe it will outlive me uh, and that um, hopefully it will get bigger. Where it goes from here is still an open question. Thanks for listening. The year Thomas spent developing that algorithm also led to a national reporting project called Murder Mysteries. And we've got a link to that and the Murder Accountability Project's website in our episode notes. You can find Thomas's contact info on their site too. On our next episode, Aaron McKinstry talks to Craig Harris and Dennis Wagner from the Arizona Republic about their investigation into public housing construction on the Navajo Reservation. As we were traveling up on the reservation, we got to the point that was almost everything you saw was so shocking about the projects that got built and that were never finished or, or things that were boarded up. I mean, that was one of the hardest things to see is just to see how people live in just abject poverty. If you're a fan of the show, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, where you can also help us reach new audiences by writing a review. 
The IRE Radio podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Blake Nelson. Podcast. Podcast.